This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, what's life all about? Well, today we're at Belgrave Heights Convention recording a very special intimate show before a small live audience up here at Belgrave Heights. Now, we're asking this big question today to David Cook. David was principal of Sydney Missionary and Bible College for 26 years. Now, he spends his time lecturing and speaking about the Christian message in Australia and internationally, and he joins me now. Please welcome David Cook. Now, David, you do a lot of speaking and lecturing about the Christian message. Do you ever get bored of that? No, because I am struck by the fact that it is always relevant and it is always contemporary. Yeah. And I'm now uh, 71 years of age and I think I've been preaching for the past 50 years and I've always thought that uh, what I'm speaking about from the Bible is very contemporary and it never depreciates and never wears out because I think it's realistic in what it says about the human condition and the human condition basically doesn't change. Well, thanks, David. Well, thanks for joining us here today. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking David Cook about what life is all about. So, David, our smaller questions today, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about the board game, The Game of Life. Now, have you ever played the Game of Life no, board no, game? I, no, I haven't. No, you haven't? I'm not oh. a board game type person. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see how you go. Okay. Um, do you feel qualified for this question then? No, not at all. <laughs> okay, ahead. well, there's two <laughs> questions, both multiple choice, and we do try our best to help our guests to pass. Okay, question one. Now, the Game of Life, which is a popular board game which simulates a person's travels through life. Now, it was originally created by Milton Bradley in what year? Was it A... 2560 BC, the game is almost as old as life itself. Is it B, 160 BC, created by, or also with Greek philosophers ruminating on life? Was it C, 1860, uh, or was it D, 1960? Uh, I'll say 1960. Um, you could, but unfortunately it's not the right answer. The actual answer was, so the actual answer was C. 1860, it was created um, by Milton Bradley in that time. It's amazing. All my life, I've never played it. No, no, and it's been around for 150 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. Well, anyway, it was question two. Well, question two. We'll see, we'll see if we can do our best to try to help you pass. Okay, question two. The modern version of Game of Life, at the end of the game, a player reaches a day of reckoning, uh, where it, which was a retirement, where a player can choose between going to two destinations, the millionaire estates or to where. Is it A, to the happy hunting ground, to B, the countryside acres, to C, the poor farm, or D, Broken Hill? So which of those is the other destination that you can choose to go to on the day of reckoning when you play the game of life? Might be hard if you've never played the game, but give it a go anyway. A Broken Hill. Uh, it's not. <laughs> Maybe just so you don't, part, don't fail. We'd like to get our, help our guests to pass. Maybe we'll try one of the other ones. That's too nil. Too no, nil. It's, it's pretty too, bad. Yeah, it's not, it's not very good. Yeah. I um, thought you'd ask me something about Aussie rules or something relevant like that. <laughs> okay. I mean, you ought to be we're, engaging we're talking about, with me. We're talking about life. Well, I suppose maybe, uh, Aussie rules is a big question of yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. So maybe so the happy hunting ground, the country acres, or the poor farm, which one of those was the other option 
for the millionaires. Oh, the happy, uh, the uh, poor farm. Okay, well, actually, I'm not. I'm sorry, we're not going to get very far here today. I'm afraid, David. No, I'm afraid. No. I'm sorry. The actual the actual answer was B. The countryside acres. All right. Um, yeah. Good. So I'm sorry. So I'm unfortunately, sorry. you you haven't I done failed. so well in the game of life. Unfortunately, no. you got none of our two big smaller questions right. But anyway, big round of applause for David for. <laughs> So, David, the game of life, it's a board game that's been around for a bit longer perhaps than you've realised, but it does obviously engage with the big question of life itself. So is life just a game? Uh, No, life is a real experience that we didn't choose, others chose for us, and that we um, come into being by the choice of others, and we leave this life also determined by the choice of others. So it's not a game. I think it's a. Uh, I would see that life is a serious preparation. Yeah. Um, for the big event, so it's like a a training, a long term training session for the big game, which is coming ultimately. Yeah. What, what do you so, say? That, what do you mean by the big game? Well, I think that ultimately. Um, uh, when I am born, I am born for eternity mm-hmm. and the first 70 or so years of that is on this planet. But after I leave uh, this body and this planet, I have an eternity of existence. So that's going to stretch out for a very long time. Yeah. And the life I have here ultimately is a preparation for the eternal life which is to come. That's yeah. the way I would see it. Right, okay. It's almost like another day of reckoning perhaps, like the game uh, of life. Yeah, it's just like I, I guess to use an AFL match, it's getting ready for the grand final. Right. And uh, we're constantly training and we're constantly working together. But I know that when the day of grand final comes, that is that de- when death comes... And I drop this body that there'll be a part of me, the eternal part of me, which will continue. And uh, that my experience in that continuation will be determined by the choices and the preparation which I've made here. Right. Yeah. But many people in our world, though, don't necessarily think of the, you know, the world beyond this one, for example. No. So, for example, like Confucius, for example, uh, said, we all have two lives. The second one starts when we realise we only have one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so how do you respond it, it's, to that? it's a bit like the child in the womb of the mother, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, saying to herself, oh, the twins in the womb saying, oh, they say there's more to life than this, that there's something out there, but I don't know. I don't think so. That's not consistent with that experience. Yeah. And then one day something happens and there is a big world out there. Yeah. And so to uh, our senses, we can't see that there is another world because I can only sense and experience this world. Yeah. And so when I die, I've never done that before. No. And when I go out into the other world, world I've never done that before and only the Lord Jesus I believe has done that and therefore is an expert on that Mm -hmm. and therefore he came from the eternal world to this one to tell us how we can enter into that eternal world Mm. so I put it to you that Confucius is not an expert on the life to come and neither is any other religious leader apart from the Lord Jesus which Mm. makes him unique Mm. so I want to listen to him because he claims expertise Mm. and therefore if he claims expertise that's not unusual for a person to claim expertise, but he actually backs the expertise up by being raised from the dead. Right, yeah. And I don't know any other religious leader for whom that has mm. been their experience. Okay, well, we may have... Maybe we'll get back to some religious leaders in a second, but what about Hollywood leaders, I suppose, for example? Like, say, Mae West. Like, Mae West once said, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. 
So why do we need a, a grand final, so to speak? Why can't we just maximise our life here? Because God has made us for eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have a member of my family who is involved in the Hollywood entertainment industry, and so we visit there every year in order to visit him. And so my experience there is a lot of warmth and a lot of knowledge and a lot of... Um, uh, if you like, uselessness and hopelessness. And so when Mae West has something to say, it's usually interesting and pithy, but it's not worth staking your life experience on what she says. Right. And so May, if I put Mae West in one category and <laughs> Jesus in the other, I think I would rather depend on what Jesus says. Yeah, okay. Well, why don't you try another sort of Hollywood star, Audrey Hepburn. Uh, yes, she uh, says the most important thing is to enjoy your life to be happy, it's all that matters. Um, uh, actually, you put your finger on my favourite actress. Oh, really? I think she was she was a wonderful actress, um, and, and and yet I wonder. And she was a very fine and lovely person, uh, but I wonder whether she would say that now because I believe that Audrey Hepburn has an eternal existence as well, and she, as you know, died of bowel cancer, and um, she's she's gone out into the world. What was her experience of this life? Mm-hmm. And what is her experience now in her eternal state? Now, you see, according to my senses, I can't see the eternal state. Yeah, that's right. I believe all I can see is you and all you can see is me and I'm my body and you're your body. Yeah. And yet we believe that there is a part of me which is born for eternity which you cannot see. Many people call it the soul or call it the spirit or call it whatever you will. But there is a part of me which will not cease uh, in its existence. When I drop my body, my body drops. Mm. Um, and so someone said in the past, you, sure. do, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. Yeah. You have a body mm-hmm. and that body will drop. But you are basically a soul. Mm. You are an eternal being mm. and the body is here for a while and then it goes. So how do I know that I have a soul though? Um, well, you know that you have a soul because God says you do. Yeah. Okay. And it, and the, and there is a there's there is a hidden part of you which you know is the summation of your deepest, closest thoughts mm-hmm. and your a sense of your relationship with God. And so God says that you are made in His image, and there is more to you, therefore, than the body, because there because God is spirit. And therefore, if I'm made in his image, the image of a spirit being, then there must be a spiritual element to me. Mm, mm. So I'm just trying to think about the various different philosophies about you know, finding happiness, trying to find, maximise the, the, this world. Um, why do you think they're so popular in our world? Uh, well, because I think people are looking for meaning. People mm. realise that commercialism and secularism don't actually give the answers to the big questions of life. Right. Science doesn't give answers to the big questions of life. No. You've never heard a scientist stand up and say, I'm here to tell you on the base of scientific evidence what life is all about. Yeah. I'm here to tell you where what, what is in the future. Uh, science doesn't answer questions mm. like who am I, where did I come from, where am I going, life, what life is all about. Science answers important questions. There's no doubt about that. But science doesn't answer the really big questions of life. So where do we look? Mm. We look to philosophy. We look to all sorts of other areas. We look to religion. Mm. And you've got to work out where you're going to find the answers to the big question of Mm. life. 
and you found those answers in Jesus. Well, because I, I'm not I'm not really interested in listening to anybody who makes big claims. Yeah, uh, you, you can make big claims, but Jesus is unique in that he makes big claims, but he also backs them up with action. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, for example, says he claims to be the light of the world, and that's what he said. I mean, in John's Gospel, for example, and John's Gospel, remember, has more ancient manuscript evidence to back it up than any other ancient document. Mm. So if you're going to reject the veracity of John's Gospel, you've got to reject Caesar's Gaelic Wars. You've got to reject Plato's philosophies. You've got to reject them all. But there is more manuscript evidence to back up the integrity of John's Gospel than anything. And John says, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Well, that's a big claim, isn't it? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's bigger than death. Well, that's a big claim. But John then goes on in the very next chapter, John chapter 9, and says, Jesus brings a man who was born blind to light to back up his claim that he's the light of the world. And then he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead four days, according to John, and the integrity of the claim is there in front of eyewitnesses, and he calls Lazarus from the grave. And Lazarus' sister say, don't take the stone away from the tomb. He's decomposing and he smells. Mm. And yet Jesus calls him back to life. And it's in this context that he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, I don't know anybody else who does that. I know others who claim that their God is gracious and merciful. And I often talk to taxi drivers in Sydney and say, you believe your God is gracious and merciful. What has he ever done to back up the claim? Oh, I believe that he's gracious and merciful because he says he is. Oh, I see. That's good. Well, I believe that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus is gracious and merciful too because he said he is, but he goes one step further. He shows himself in history that he is actually gracious. He acts graciously and he acts mercifully. And he did that ultimately at the cross of his son. So Christianity is not just big claim, but it is backed up by historic evidence. See, for the Christian, you don't leave your brain at the door. No. You bring it in and people think, oh, to be a Christian, you need blind faith. It's a leap in the dark. I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't have a firm conviction that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That was what convinced you to no. become a Christian believer? Well, tell us your story. How did well, you... no. I, I, my father had become a Christian at the age of 48. He was a company director and an accountant, and he came home and told us that he'd become a Christian. I thought that was a remarkable thing. Well, but So uh, you weren't a church-going family? We weren't a church-going family at all. In fact, I was my father's only son, two, other, two, two daughters and one son, and my father had trained me. I'd go and buy his cigarettes for him. In those <laughs> days, kids could go up and buy the Ardaths, and he trained me to pour the perfect beer for him right and and i knew that that was my dad and yeah. he had nicotine fingers that were totally brown because he'd smoke a packet a day yeah and he'd down the old schooners of resh's dinner ale i mean my name he named me david andrew cook after yeah. resh's the beer was resh's da dinner <laughs> ale and he wanted a son da and i'm david <laughs> andrew right so he comes home and he tells us that he's become a christian and I, I saw so, the change. So how did you react to that when you heard that? I thought he was joking right. because he was a great teaser. I said, you're kidding. He said, I'm not. So how old were you when this happened? Um, it was 1962, so I was uh, 15. 
Right. And I said, no, you're joking. And he said, no. He said, I've not really, I think I've been a good father, which he had been, and I'm not going to ask you a lot of you, but I do want you to come to church with me on a Sunday night. So I went to church on a Sunday night and it was dreadful. I mean, it was so boring that I sat there and I could feel myself swallow my saliva and thought I might be disrupting someone else. Anyway, I just kept going, but I could see the change in my father. He. Uh, so what happened to your father? What was, the, what was it that precipitated the change for him? Oh, he, he was in business with a friend and the friend just keeps shit talking to him about Jesus, sharing the gospel. And my father, after 12 months, said, yep, that's true. Wow. And he, he was changed totally. My mother was converted a week after that. And so we became a Christian household. I wasn't a Christian. Five years later, I heard about Jesus. And I thought, it is compelling that he is Lord. And I became a Christian. I know God worked in my heart. It wasn't my decision. It was God worked in my mm. heart. It was all clear. It was only later after I decided to follow Jesus, that I found all the evidence compelling. <laughs> but I didn't become a Christian because of the compelling evidence. So what was it that convinced you at that moment? Uh, it, 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 I heard a bloke, he was preaching on the book of Malachi. I had never heard the book about the book of Malachi before. It's in the Old Testament, yeah, the yes. Old Testament part of the Bible. Yes, yeah. that's right, yes, sorry. And uh, I'd heard this and it was as though um, I saw it all, that my life was a complete mess under my control that I had no right to control my own life. God, the creator who created me, had every right to, con to control that which he had made. Mm. And that made absolute sense to me. And I said, God, I'm sorry for trying to live my life apart from you. And uh, please take, please forgive me and please take control of my life. It was really like a sorry, thank you, please prayer. I'm sorry I've ignored you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Please forgive me and take mm. control of my life. And my life changed completely. But then I started to read and I started to find that the evidence mm. was actually compelling to back up that decision yeah, so it wasn't which a, I had a made. Blind faith, so to no, say, the the reality speak. is that we look, I believe that God is God and I am not. Mm. None of the listeners who are listening to us tonight are God. No. God is God, and unless God initiates you're coming to Christ and having new life. You can't do it. Mm. But God is a generous evangelist. God is a generous giver. Tell him, I find it so hard to believe this. And he'll give you the belief you need. Mm. And he gave me the belief I needed. And then when I came to him, I looked at it and I thought, yes, this makes logical sense. I, I studied economics and then I studied history. And I found the study of history only made me more convinced of the reality of mm. the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is central to back up every claim he made. He mm. said he would die. He said he would rise. He did die and he was raised. And therefore, he is earmarked as mm. God's divine son, mm. the son of God. And so it says in the Bible, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that's what I did. And that was your experience. And how did your life change then after that? Well, I, immediately I wanted to look for ways of being more loving to others, mm -hmm. of being more, consist being, being more considerate. Uh, one of my favourite uh, Christian writers, a man by J.C. Ryle, says, I'm an old man now, but I seldom meet a young man who is humble or an old man who is contented. Uh, and so as a, as a young man, I think it humbled me. I realised that all my pride 
uh, and self-sufficiency and arrogance was actually empty. I was a dependent being. Mm. Well, today's big question is what's life all about? And as you mentioned before, Jesus has a fair bit to say about this, about his death and resurrection. So what does Jesus say about this question? What's life all about? Well, it's interesting that when the Apostle Paul went to Athens, and remember that Athens was the centre in the first century of philosophical speculation. It was the centre of knowledge. Uh, Paul, uh, we read there, went to the Areopagus, which was the ruling council of all Athens. So here he goes to the centre of knowledge, and what does he find? He finds great ignorance. He finds virtually an idol on every corner. And so he wants to declare to them the truth. And it's interesting that the truth that he declares to them is this truth. At Acts 17, verse 31, he says to the Areopagus, which is a council, a group of men and women who run Greek culture and Greek life. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising that man from the dead. So the Apostle Paul says at the centre of all wisdom is the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God has set the day when we will stand before him, the judgment day, when we will stand before Jesus who is the judge. And the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of that. Now, how does the rising of Jesus prove that the judgment day has been set and will stand before him? Jesus died and rose. And his experience means that death will not be the end for Jesus and death will not be the end for you. Beyond death, there will be life. For Jesus, beyond death, there was life. And so Paul says, I want you to know that Jesus' experience will be your experience. Beyond death, there will be life. But in that next blink of the eye, you will stand before Jesus as judge. And notice what Paul says. He says, God has given proof of this. Mm. Now, when we think about proof, we think about scientific proof, don't we? We think we'll do it again. If I can see Jesus die and rise again, that's the proof. What's scientific proof? You conduct an experiment, you observe, and you draw a conclusion. And that is legitimate in certain areas of life. Now, God has given us the proof that Jesus did rise from the dead. He's given us legal proof. And remember, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere that Jesus appeared resurrected to 500 people at once. And he said, and he appeared to his brother James. And he appeared last of all to me. Paul was reluctant as a believer. And James, remember that James was a half-brother of Jesus. James shared the womb of Mary with Jesus except James' father was Joseph. Now, you ask yourself the question, if you've got a brother, what would your brother need to do to prove to you that he was God? (laughs) And you say, well, my brother's certainly not God. But James thought that Jesus, his brother, was insane, remember, initially. And yet he is the author of the first letter in the New Testament in which he describes himself, James, the servant of God and the servant of the Lord, the God, Jesus Christ. What convinced James that his brother, Jesus, was God? It was the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. You see, so here is the proof. We've got all the legal evidence 
And therefore, Paul says that legal evidence of the resurrection of Jesus means you'll meet him in the judgment day. And today is one day closer to the judgment day than yesterday. Therefore, Paul says to them in verse 30, the previous verse, in the past, God overlooked the ignorance of idolatry in which we made our own gods. And he now commands all people everywhere, everywhere, universally, worldwide. Around the world. Or around the world. He commands all people everywhere to repent, to stop ignoring Jesus and to start living under his control. So a lot hangs then on the resurrection of Jesus here. Yes. Yes, it does. Everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. Uh, so if we could, if if we could dig up the bones of Jesus in the deserts of Palestine, I wouldn't be a Christian. Mm. Yeah, there's no. Uh, there, so there, you're saying not, not just is that proof that the Christian message is is true and worth believing, but it's also pointing to this future judgment day. Judgment day. Yeah. So it was day of reckoning, perhaps, as yes, the game of life. That's right. You could play the game of life, perhaps. Yes, to, maybe. To find I, that day maybe of I, I would. So what and, does this and then we would, tell, what does we this would tell expect us? there to be a judgment day, wouldn't we? Because of when you look around the world and all the wickedness which you see, Stalin and the millions he slaughtered, Mao Zedong and the millions he slaughtered, Hitler and the millions he slaughtered, don't you cry out for a sense of justice in a case like that? And when I look at my own life, I can see wickedness in my own life, perhaps not on the, on, on the level of Stalin and Mao and Hitler, but there is wickedness and hatred and envy and evil there. Mm. Isn't it right that there should be a day of reckoning when we should answer to a higher power? And, geez, and God says there is a judgment day and it's coming. So get ready because you're going to meet Jesus the judge. And you'd better have an explanation for him. And the best explanation is that you've bowed the knee and put your trust in him to forgive your sin. So you're saying a lot of what life is all about then is sort of acknowledging that this day is approaching. Yes, and living in the light of that day. Mm. Am, I, am I ready for the day? Mm. Now, as we're ref- reflecting on this big question, what's life all about? Now, you have something in the front of your Bible, David, which is sort of guides your... Uh, life in many ways. Can you just explain what you've got there? That, no, no, that's right. That's right. So here it is. I try and read this to myself every day, and I don't know who wrote it, but I know the man who gave this to me many years ago, um, and this is what it says. When I reach the end of my days, a moment or two from now, I must look backward on something more meaningful than the pursuit of houses, land, stocks, bonds and machines. I will consider my earthly existence to have been wasted unless I can recall a loving family, a consistent investment in the lives of people and an earnest attempt to serve the God who made me. Nothing else makes much sense. So why is that so important for you? Well, because I think that's right. I look at the adjectives there, a loving family. Can I see that? A consistent investment in the lives of people, a consistent relationship with people, investing in them, an earnest, enthusiastic, zealous, single-minded attempt to serve the interests of the God who made me. I think that's what life's all about. And that's why if I turn to other things, we live on a marina and think, oh, if I had a great big cruiser um, or whatever... Uh, that's not going to satisfy. 
that doesn't fit into any of those categories, does it? Mm. The categories which really matter are relational categories, investing in people because people are precious and made in the image of God and serving the interests of God who knows us best. And when we serve his interests, we're actually loving one another because we're encouraging one another to know the God who knows us and loves us best. And this has been shaped and motivated by the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. Which is what drives your life. That's right. Mm. So, David, what's life all about? Life is all about knowing God, knowing that you are loved, uh, knowing the Lord Jesus, and knowing that you have an eternal future in fellowship and friendship with him. And this comes from the resurrection of Jesus. That's right. Mm. Well, let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the bigger question, what's life all about, from Acts 17.31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, David Cook. Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Now if you want to be a part of the live audience of Bigger Questions, we've got a couple of live shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Our Songs of the Heart series so far has been outstanding and those recordings will be available on the podcast sometime next year. Now if you can't wait that long, we still have two more lunchtime recordings. One on Tuesday the 15th of October with Scottish author and speaker David Robertson where we ask, if God is real, where is he? And then on Tuesday, the 29th of October, we asked the big question, what happens when I die with former Melbourne pastor Mark Connor, who used to lead Melbourne's largest church, City Life. You can check out biggerquestions.org slash songs for all the details, and we hope to see you there. And also, we do have another live recording on Sunday, the 13th of October, in partnership with Darabin Presbyterian Church in Thornbury, in Melbourne's inner north. You can join us at 4.30pm when we ask two business leaders the big question, does power corrupt? Check out the Facebook event or send us an email if you want more of the details. All of these recordings are free events and it'd be great if you could get along. So thanks again for listening to Bigger Questions and don't forget to follow Bigger Questions on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And please share the show with your friends or colleagues. Let's get the word out and get more people asking the bigger questions in our world. And if you want to invest in bigger thinking, and maybe you could support us on Patreon. For as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. Well, thanks again for listening, and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.